Commander of the Faithful, that in times of yore the land of Egypt was ruled by a sultan endowed with justice and generosity, one who loved the pious poor and companied with the ulema and learned men, and he had a wazir, a wise and inexperienced, well-versed in affairs and in the art of government. This minister, who was a very old man, had two sons, as they were two moons. Never man saw the like of them for beauty and grace. The elder called Shams al-Din Mohammed, and the younger Nur al-Din Ali. But the younger excelled the elder in seemliness and pleasing semblance, so that folk heard his fame in far countries and men flocked to Egypt for the purpose of seeing him. In course of time, their father, the wazir, died and was deeply regretted and mourned by the sultan, who sent for his two sons and, investing them with dresses of honor, said to them, Let not your hearts be troubled, for ye shall stand in your father's stead and be joint ministers of Egypt. At this they rejoiced and kissed the ground before him and performed the ceremonial mourning for their father for a full month, after which time they entered upon the wazirate, and the power passed into their hands as it had been in the hands of their father, each doing duty for a week at a time. They lived under the same roof and their word was as one, and whenever the sultan desired to travel they took it in turns to be in attendance on him. It fortuned one night that the sultan was proposing to set out on a journey the next morning, and the elder, whose turn it was to accompany him, was sitting conversing with his brother and said to him, Oh, my brother, it is my wish that we both marry, I and thou, two sisters, and go into our wives on one in the same night. Do, oh, my brother, as thou desirest. The younger replied, For right is thy wrecking, and surely I will comply with thee in what so thou sayest. So they agreed upon this, and quoth Shams al-Din, If Allah decree that we marry two damsels and go into them on the same night, and they shall conceive on their bride nights, and bear children to us on the same day, and by Allah's will, thou wife bear thee a son, and my wife bear me a daughter, let us wed them either to other, for they will be cousins. O oh, my brother Shams al-Din, what dower wilt thou require from my son for thy daughter? I will take... Three thousand dinars, and three pleasure gardens, and three farms. And it would not be seemly that the youth make contract for less than this. When Nir al-Din heard such demand, he said, What manner of dower as thou would impost upon my son? Wouldest thou not, are we brothers, and both by Allah's grace, wazirs, and equal in office? It behoveth thee to offer thy daughter to my son without marriage settlement, or if one need be, it should represent a mere nominal value by way of show of the world. For thou knowest that the masculine is worthier than the feminine, and my son is male and our memory will be preserved by him, not by thy daughter. But what is she to have? Through her we shall not be remembered among the emirs of the earth. But I see thou wouldst do with me according to the saying, and thou wouldst bluff out a buyer, ask him high price and higher. Was did a man who they say went to a friend and asked something of him being in necessity and was answered, Bismillah, in the name of Allah, I will do what thou requirest, but come to tomorrow. Whereupon the other replied in this verse, When he who is asked to favor saith tomorrow, the wise man wants tis vain to beg or borrow. Bustah! I see thee fail in respect to me by making thy son of more account than my daughter. It is plain that thine understanding is of the meanest, that thou lackst manners, thou remindest me of thy partnership in the vizirate, when 
I admitted thee to share with me only in pity for thee, and not wishing to mortify thee, and that thou mightest help me as a manner of assistance. But since thou talkest on this wise, by Allah, I will never marry my daughter to thy son. No, not for her weight in gold. When Nir al-Din heard his brother's words, he waxed wroth and said, And I too, I will never, never marry my son to thy daughter. No, not to keep my lips from the cup of death. Shams al-Din replied, I would not accept him as his husband for her, and he is not worth the paring of her nail. Were I not about to travel, I would make an example of thee. However, when I return, thou shalt see, and I will show thee how I can assert my dignity and vindicate my honor. But Allah doeth but so he willeth. When Nur al-Din heard this speech from his brother, he was filled with fury and lost his wits for rage. But he hid what he felt and held his peace, and each of the brothers passed the night in a place far apart, wild with wrath against the other. As soon as morning dawned, the sultan fared forth in state and crossed over from Cairo to Jizah and made for the pyramids, accompanied by the wazir Shams al-Din, whose turn of duty it was, whilst his brother Nur al-Din, who passed the night in sore rage, rose with the light and prayed the dawn prayer. Then he betook himself to his treasury and, taking a small pair of saddlebags, filled them with gold, and he called to mind his brother's threats and the contempt wherewith he had treated him, and repeated these couplets. Travel, and thou shalt find new friends for old ones left behind. Toil, for the sweets of human life by toil and moil are found. The stay-at-home no honor wins, nor aught obtains but once. So leave thy place of birth and wander all the world around. I've seen, and very oft I've seen, how standing water sinks, and only flowing sweetens it and trotting makes it sound. And were the moon forever full and ne'er to wax or wane, man would not strain his watchful eyes to see its glance around. Except the lion leave his lair, ne'er he would fall his game. Except the arrow leave the bow, ne'er had it reached its bound. Gold dust is dust while it lies untraveled in the mine. And aloe's wood mere fuel is upon its native ground. And gold shall win his highest worth from when his goal and gold. And aloe sent to foreign parts grow costlier than gold. When he ended his verse, he bade one of his pages saddle him his Nubian mare mule with her padded selay. Now, she was a dapple grey, with ears like reed pens and legs like columns, and a back high and strong as a dome builded on pillars. Her saddle was of gold cloth and her stirrups of Indian steel, and her housing of Ispahan velvet. She had trappings which would serve the Khosros, and she was like a bride adorned for her wedding night. Moreover, he bade lay on her back a piece of silk for a seat, and a prayer carpet under which were his saddlebags. When this was done, he said to his page and slaves, I purpose going forth a pleasuring outside the city on the road to Caleb Town, and I shall lie three nights abroad, so none of you follow me, for there is something straight nayeth my breast. Then he mounted his mule in haste, and, taking with him some provant for the way, set out from Cairo and faced the open, uncultivated country lying around it. About noontide he entered Bilbay's city, where he dismounted and stayed a while to rest himself and his mule, and ate some of his victual. He bought at Bilbay's all he wanted for himself, and forage for his mule, and then fared on the way of waste. 
Towards nightfall, he entered a town called Saadia, where he alighted and took out somewhat of his viaticum and ate. Then he spread his strip of silk on the sand and set the saddlebags under his head where he slept in the open air, for he was still overcome with anger. When morning dawned, he mounted and rode onward till he reached the holy city, Jerusalem. And thence he made Aleppo, where he dismounted at one of the caravanserais, where he abode three days to rest himself and the mule and to smell the air. Then, being determined to travel afar and Allah having greatened safety in his fate, he set out again, winding without wotting whither where he was going. And, having fallen within certain couriers, he stinted not traveling till he had reached Basara city, albeit he knew not what the place was. It was dark night when he alighted at the Khan, so he spread out his prayer carpet and took down the saddlebags from the back of his mule and gave her with her furniture in charge of the doorkeeper that he might walk her about. The man took her and did as he was bid. Now, it so happened that the wazir of Basara, a man shot in years, was sitting at the lattice window of his palace opposite the Khan, and he saw the porter walking the mule up and down. He was struck by her trappings of price and thought her a nice beast fit for the riding of wazirs or even royalties. And the more he looked, the more he was perplexed, till at last he said to one of his pages, Bring hither yon doorkeeper. The page went and returned to the wazir with the porter who kissed the ground between his hands and the minister asked him, Who is the owner of yonder mule? And what manner of man is he? Oh, my lord, the owner of this mule is a comely young man of pleasant manners, withal grave and dignified, and doubtless one of the sons of the merchants. When the wazir heard the doorkeeper's words, he arose forthright and, mounting his horse, rode to the Khan and went in to Nur al-Din, who, seeing the minister making towards him, rose to his feet and advanced to meet him and saluted him. The wazir welcomed him to Basra and, dismounting, embraced him and made him sit down by his side and said, O oh, my son, whence comest thou, and what dost thou seek? Nur al-Din replied, Oh, my lord, I have come from Cairo City, of which my father was Wilson Wazir, but he hath been removed to the grace of Allah. And he informed him of all that had befallen him from beginning to end, adding, I am resolved never to return home before I have seen all the cities and countries of the world. When the wazir heard this, he said to him, Oh, my son, hearken not to the voice of passion, lest it cast thee into the pit. For indeed many regions be waste places, and I fear for thee the turns of time. Then he let load the saddlebags and the silk and prayer carpets on the mule and carried Nur din to his own house, where he lodged him in a pleasant place and entreated him honorably and made much of him, for he inclined to love him with exceeding love. After a while he said to him, O oh, my son, here am I left a man in years and have no male children, but Allah hath blessed me with a daughter, who even thee in beauty, and I have rejected all her many suitors, men of rank and substance, but affection for thee hath entered into my heart. Say to me then, wilt thou be to her a husband? If thou accept this, I will go up with thee to the Sultan of Besora, and will tell him that thou art my nephew, the son of my brother, and bring thee to be appointed wazir in my place, that I may keep the house for. By Allah, O oh my son, 
I am stricken in years and a weary. When Nur al-Din heard the wazir's words, he bowed his head in modesty and said, To hear is to obey. At this the wazir rejoiced and bade his servants prepare a feast and decorate the great assembly hall, wherein they were wont to celebrate the marriages of emirs and grandees. Then he assembled his friends and the notables of the reign and the merchants of Basora, and when all stood before him, he said to them, I had a brother who was wazir in the land of Egypt, and Allah Almighty blessed him with two sons, whilst to me, as well ye want, he hath given a daughter. My brother charged me to marry my daughter to one of his sons, whereto I assented, and to when my daughter was of age to marry, he sent me one of his sons, the man now present to whom I purpose marrying her, drawing up the contract and celebrating the night of unveiling with due ceremony, for he is nearer and dearer to me than a stranger, and after the wetting, or if he desire to travel, I will forward him and his wife to his father's home. Here it one and all replied, Right, exactly. And they all looked at the bridegroom and were pleased with him. So the wazir sent for the kazi and legal witnesses, and they wrote out the marriage contract, after which the slaves perfumed the guests with incense, and served them with sorbet of sugar, and sprinkled rose water on them, and all went their ways. Then the wazir bade his servants take Nuruddin to the hammond baths, and sent him a suit of the best of his own special raiments, and napkins and tauri, and bowls of perfume burners, and all else that was required. After the bath, when he came out and donned the dress, he was even as full as the moon on the fourteenth night, and he mounted his mule and stayed not till he reached the wazir's palace. There he dismounted and went to the minister and kissed his hand, and the wazir bade him welcome. And Shahrazad perceived the dawn of day, and ceased saying her permitted say. When it was the twenty-first night, she said, And it hath reached me, O auspicious king, that the wazir stood up to him, and welcoming him, said, Arise, and go in to thy wife this night, and on the morrow I will carry thee to the sultan, and pray Allah bless thee with all manner of weal. So Nur then left him and went into his wife, the wazir's daughter, thus far concerning him. But as regards his eldest brother, Shams al-Din, he was absent with the sultan for a long time, and when he returned from his journey, he found not his brother. And he asked of his servants and slaves, who answered, On the day of thy departure with the sultan, thy brother mounted his mule fully comparisoned, as for state processing, saying, I am going towards Kaidla town, and I shall be absent one day or at most two days, for my breast is straightened, and let none of you follow me. Then he fared forth, and from that time to this we have heard no tidings of him. Shams al-Din was greatly troubled with the disappearance of his brother and grieved with the exceeding grief at the loss and said to himself, This is only because I chided and upbraided him the night before my departure with the Sultan. Happily, his feelings were hurt and he fared forth a traveling, but I must send after him. Then he went into the Sultan and acquainted him with what had happened and wrote letters and dispatches, which he sent by running footmen to his deputies in every province. But during the twenty days of his brother's absence, Nur al-Din had traveled far and had reached Basara. So, after diligent search, the messengers failed to come to any news of him and returned. Thereupon, Shams al-Din despaired of finding his brother and said, Indeed, I went beyond all bounds of what I said to him with reference to the marriage of our children. But would that I had not done so, this all cometh of my lack of wit and want of caution. 
Soon after this, he sought in marriage the daughter of a Karin merchant, and drew up the marriage contract and went into her. And it so chanced that, on the very same night when Shams al-Din went into his wife, Nur al-Din also went into his wife, the daughter of the wazir of Basora. This being in accordance with the will of the Almighty Allah, that he might deal the decrees of destiny to his creatures. Furthermore, it was as the two brothers had said, for their wives became pregnant by them on the same night and both were brought to bed on the same day. The wife of Shams al-Din, wazir of Egypt, of a daughter, never in Cairo was seen a fairer, and the wife of Nur al-Din of a son, none more beautiful was ever seen in his time. As one of the poets said concerning the like of him, That jetty hair, that glossy brow, my slender wasted youth of thine, can darkness round creation throw, or make it brightly shine, the dusky moor that faintly shows, upon his cheek, I blame it not, the tulip flower never blows, undarkened by its spot. And as another also said, His scent was musk and his cheek was rose, his teeth are pearls and his lips drop vine, his form is a brand and his hips a hill, his hair is night and his face moonshine. They named the boy Badr al-Din Hassan and his grandfather, the wazir of Basara, rejoiced in him and, on the seventh day after his birth, made entertainments and spread banquets which would befit the birth of king's sons and heirs. Then he took Nur al-Din and went up with him to the sultan, and his son-in-law, when he came before the presence of the king, kissed the ground between his hands and repeated these verses, for he was ready of speech, firm of sprite, and good in heart, and he was goodly in form. The world's best joys long be thy lot, my lord, and last while darkness and the dawn o'erlap. O thou who makest when we greet thy gifts, the world to dance and time his palms to clap. Then the sultan rose up to honor them, thanking Nurodin for his fine compliment and asked the wazir, Who may be this young man? And the minister answered, This is my brother's son. Quoth the sultan, and how comes he to be thy nephew, and we have never heard speak of him? Quoth the minister. O oh, our lord the sultan, I had a brother who was wazir in the land of Egypt, and he died, leaving two sons whereof the elder had taken his father's place, and the younger whom thou seest came to me. I had sworn I would not marry my daughter to any but to him, so when I came I married him to her. Now he is young and I am old. My hearing is dulled, and my judgment is easily fooled. Wherefore I would solicit our lord, the sultan, to set him in my stead. For he is my brother's son, and my daughter's husband. And he is fit for the wazirites, being a man of good counsel and ready contravance. The sultan looked at Nuruddin and liked him, so he established him in office as the wazir had requested, and formally appointed him presenting him with the splendid dress of honor and a she-mule from his private stud, and assigned to him soul stipends and supplies. Nur al-Din kissed the sultan's hand and went home, he and his father-in-law joying with exceeding joy and saying, All this followers on the heels of the boy Hassan's birth. Next day he presented himself before the king and, kissing the ground, began repeating, Grow thy will and thy welfare day by day, and thy luck prevail o'er the evanier's spite. And thy luck prevail over the envier spite. And ne'er cease thy days to be white as day, and thy foeman's days to be black as night. 
The sultan bade him be seated at the wazir's seat, so he sat down and applied himself to the business of his office, and went into the cases of the lieges and their suits, as is the wont of ministers, while the sultan watched him and wondered at his wit and good sense, judgment and insight. Wherefore he loved him and took him into intimacy. When the divan was dismissed, Nur al-Din returned to his house and related what had passed to his father-in-law, who rejoiced. And thenceforth, Nur al-Din ceased not so to administer the wazirate that the sultan would not be parted from him night or day, and increased his stipends and supplies until his means were ample and he became the owner of ships that made trading voyages at his command, as well as the Mamluks and Blackmore slaves. And he laid out many estates and set up Persian wheels and planted gardens. When his son Hassan was four years of age, the old wazir deceased, and he made for his father-in-law a sumptuous funeral ceremony, ere he was laid in the dust. He then occupied himself with the education of his son, and, when the boy waxed strong and came to the age of seven, he brought him a faqih, a doctor of law and religion, to teach him in his own house and charged him to give him a good education and instruct him in politeness and manners. So the tutor made the boy read and attain all varieties of useful knowledge. After he had spent some years learning the Quran by heart, and he ceased not grow in beauty and stature and symmetry, even as saith the poet, In his face sky shines the fullest moon, in his cheeks anemone glows the sun, he so conquered beauty that he hath won all charms of humanity one by one. The professor brought him up in his father's palace, teaching him reading, writing and ciphering, theology and belles letters. His grandfather, the old wazir, had bequeathed to him a whole of his prophecy when he was but four years of age. Now, during all the time of his earliest youth, he had never left the house, till on a certain day his father, the wazir Nur al-Din, clad him in the best clothes and, mounting him on a shemule of the finest, went up with him to the sultan. The king gazed at Badr al-Din Hassan and marveled at his comeliness and loved him. As for the city folk, when they first passed before them with his father, they marveled at his exceeding beauty and sat down on the road expecting his return, that they might look their fill on his beauty and loveliness and symmetry and perfect grace, even as the poet said in these verses. As the sage watch the stars, the simmons clear of a fair youth, on scroll he saw appear. Those jetty locks canopus o'er him through, and tinged his temple careless a musky hue. Mars dyed his ruddy cheek, and from his eyes the archer star his glittering arrow flies. His wit from Hermes came, and so has care, the half-seen star that dimly haunts the bear, kept off all evil eyes that threaten and ensnare. The sage stood mazed to see such fortunes meet, and Luna kissed the earth beneath his feet. And they blessed him aloud as he passed, and called upon Almighty Allah to bless him. The Sultan entreated the lad with his special favors, and said to his father, O Wazir, thou must needs bring him daily to my presence. Whereupon he replied, I hear, and I obey. Then the wazir returned home with his son and ceased not to carry him to the court till he reached the age of twenty. At that time the minister sickened and, sending for Badr al-Din Hassan, said to him, Know, O my son, that the wealth of the present is but a house of mortality, while that of the future is a house of eternity. I wish, before I die, to bequeath thee certain charges, and thou take heed of what I say, and incline thy heart to my words. 
Then he gave him last instructions as to the properest way of dealing with his neighbors and the due management of his affairs. After which he called to mind his brother and his home and his native land and wept over separation from those he had first loved. Then he wiped away his tears and, turning to his son, said to him, Before I proceed, O my son, to my last charges and injunctions, know that I have a brother and thou hast an uncle. Shams al-Din Haid, the wazir of Cairo, which whom I had parted, leaving him against his will. Now take thee a sheet of paper, and write upon it what say or I say to thee. Badr al-Din took a fair leaf and set about doing his father's bidding, and he wrote thereon the full account of what had happened to his sire, first and last. The dates of his arrival at Basra and his foregathering with the wazir, of his marriage, of his going to the minister's daughter, and the birth of his son. Brief, his life of forty years from the date of his dispute with his brother, adding the words, And this is written as my dictation, and may Almighty Allah be with him when I am gone. Then he folded the paper and sealed it and said, O Hassan, O my son, keep this paper with all care, for it will enable thee to establish thine origin and rank and lineage, if anything contrary befall thee. Set out for Cairo and ask for thine uncle, and show him this paper, and say to him that I died a stranger far from mine own people, and full of yearning to see him and them. So Badr al-Din took the document and folded it, and, wrapping it in a piece of waxed cloth over his skullcap, and wound tight his turban round it. And he fell to weeping over his father and it departing with him, and he but a boy. Then Nur al-Din lapsed into a swoon, the forerunner of death. But, presently recovering himself, he said, O Hassan, O my son, I will now bequeath to thee five last behests. The first behest is that be over-intimate with none, nor frequent any, nor be familiar with any. So shalt thou be safe from his mischief. Whose security lieth in seclusion of thought and certain retirement from the society of thy fellows. And I have heard it is said by a poet, In this world there is none thou mayst count upon, to befriend thy case in the nick of need. So live for thyself, nursing hope of none. Such counsel I give thee, ye now take heed. The second behest is, Oh, my son, Deal harshly with none lest fortune with thee deal hardly. For the fortune of this world is one day with thee and another day against thee, and all worldly goods are but a loan to be repaid. And I have heard a poet say, Take thought nor haste to win the thing thou wilt. Have ruth on man or ruth thou mayest require. Nor hand is there but Allah's hand is higher. No tyrant shall rule worse tyrant's eye. The third behest is, Learn to be silent in society, and let thine old faults distract thine attention from the faults of other men. For it is said, In silence dwelleth safety. And thereon I have heard the lines that tell us, Reserves a jewel, silence safety is. Whenest thou speakest, many a word withhold. For and of silence thou repent thee once, 
of speech thou shalt repent times manifold. The fourth behest, O my son, is beware of wine-bibbing, for wine is the head of all forwardness and a fine solvent of human wits. So shun, and again I say, shun mixing strong liquor, for I have heard a poet say, From wine I turn, and whoso wine cups will, becoming one of those who deem it ill. Wine driveth a man to miss salvation way, and opens the gateway wide to sins that kill. Fifth behest, O my son, is keep thy wealth, and it will keep thee. Guard thy money, it will guard thee. And waste not thy substance, lest happily thou come to want, and must fare a begging from the meanest of mankind. Save thy durhams, and deem that to be sovereignest is salve for the wounds of the world. And here again, I have heard that one of the poets said, When fails my wealth, no friend will deign to friend. When wealth abounds all friendships, their friendship tender. How many friends lend aid my wealth to spend? But friends, to lack of wealth, no friendship render. <laughs> On this, wise Nur al-Din ceased not to counsel his son, Badr al-Din Hassan, till his hour came, and, sighing one sobbing sigh, his life went forth. Then the voice of mourning and keening rose high in his house, and the sultan and all the grandees grieved for him and buried him. But his son ceased not lamenting his loss for two months, during which he never mounted horse, never attended the divan, nor presented himself before the sultan. At last the king, being wroth with him, established in his stead one of the chamberlains and made him wazir, giving orders to seize and set seals on all Nur al-Din's houses and goods and domains. So the wazir went forth with a mighty posse of chamberlains and people of the divan, and watchmen and a host of idlers to do this and to seize Badr al-Din Hassan and carry him before the king, who would deal with him as he deemed fit. Now there was among the crowd of followers a mameluk of the deceased wazir who, when he heard this order, urged his horse at full speed and rode to the house of Badr al-Din Hassan, for he could not endure to see the ruin of his old master's son. He found him sitting at the gate with his head hung down and sorrowing, as was his wont, for the loss of his father. So he dismounted and, kissing his hand, said to him, O oh my lord and son of my lord, haste at Alu and come and lay waste. When Hassan heard this, he trembled and asked, What may be the matter? The man answered, the sultan is enraged and has issued a warrant against thee, and evil cometh hard upon my track, so flee with thy life. At these words, Hassan's heart flamed with the fire of Baal, and his rose-red cheeks turned pale, and he said to the Mameluk, Oh, my brother, is there time for me to go in and get me some worldly gear, which may stand me instead during my strangerhood? But the slave replied, Oh, my lord, up at once and save thyself and leave this house while it is yet time. And he quoted these lines, Escape with thy life before Preston be tied thee, and let the house of its builders fate. Country for country, thou wilt find if thou seek it. Life for life, never early or late. It is strange that men should dwell in the house of objection, when the plain of God's earth is so wide and so great. At these words of the Mameluk, Bedr al-Din covered his head with the skirts of his garment and went forth on foot till he stood outside the city, where he heard folks saying, 
The Sultan hath sent his new vizier to the house of the old vizier, now no more, to seal his property and seize his son, Badir al-Din Hassan, and take him before the presence, that he may put him to death. And all cried, Alas for his beauty and his loveliness. When he heard this, he fled forth at hazard, knowing not whither he was going, and gave not over hurrying onward till destiny drove him to his father's tomb. So he entered the cemetery and, threading his way through the graves, at last reached the sepulchre where he sat down and let fall from his head the skirt of his long robe, which was made of brocade with a gold embroidered hem whereon were worked these couplets. O thou whose forehead like the radiant east tells of the stars of heaven and bounteous dews, endure thine honor to the latest day, and time thy growth of glory ne'er refuse. While he was sitting by his father's tomb, behold, there came to him a Jew, as he were a shroff, a money changer, with a pair of saddlebags containing much gold, who accosted him and kissed his hand, saying, Whither bound, O my lord? Tis late in the day, and thou art clad but lightly, and I read signs of trouble in thy face? I was sleeping within this very hour, answered Hassan, when my father appeared to me and chid me for not having visited his tomb. So I awoke trembling, and came hither forthright, lest the day should go by without my visiting him, which would have been grievous to me. Oh, my lord, rejoined the Jew, thy father had many merchant men at sea, and, as some of them are now do, it is my wish to buy of thee the cargo of the first ship that cometh into port with this thousand dinars of gold. I consent, quoth Hassan, Whereupon the Jew took out the bag of gold and counted a thousand sequins which he gave to Hassan, the son of the wazir, saying, Hee Write me a letter of sale and seal it. So Hassan took a pen and paper and wrote out these words in duplicate. The writer, Hassan Wadir al-Din, son of Wazir Nur al-Din, hath to Isaac the Jew all the cargo of the first of his father's ships which cometh into port for a thousand dinars, and he hath received the price in advance. And after he had taken one copy, the Jew put it in his pouch and went away. But Hassan fell a-weeping as he thought of the dignity and prosperity which had erst been his, and he began reciting, This house, my lady, since you left is now a home no more. For me, not neighbors, since you left, prove kind and neighborly. The friend, while e'er I took to heart, alas, no more to be his friend. And even Luda self-displayeth lunacy. You left, and by your going left the world a waste, a wolf, and lies a gloomy murk upon the face of hill and lea. Oh, may the raven bird whose cry our hapless parting croaked, find near a nesty home, and A.K. shed all his blueberry. At length my patience fails me, and this absence wastes my flesh. How many a veal by severance rent our eyes our doomed sea. Ah! Shall I ever sight again our fair past nights of yore? And shall a single house become a home for me once more? Then he wept with exceeding weeping, and night came upon him. So he leant his head against his father's grave, and sleep overcame him. Glory to him who sleepeth not. He ceased not slumbering till the moon rose, and when his head slipped off the tomb, he lay on his back with limbs outstretched, his face shining bright in the moonlight. Now the cemetery was haunted day and night by jinns who were of the true believers, and presently came out the jinnah who, seeing Hassan asleep, marveled at his beauty and loveliness and cried, Glory to God, 
Then she flew firmament towards to circle it, as was her custom, and met an ifrit on the wing, who saluted her, and she said to him, What is Kalistar? He replied, From she asked, and he answered. So they flew till they lighted at the tomb, and she showed him the youth and said, The Ifrit looked upon him and exclaimed, that I would marry my daughter to none save to the son of my brother on the day her mother gave her birth, which was nine upon nineteen years ago. I have lately heard that my brother died at Basra, where he married the daughter of the vizier, and that she bare him a son. And I will not marry my daughter, but to him in honor of my brother's memory. I recorded the date of my marriage and the conception of my wife, and the birth of my daughter. And from her horoscope, I find that her name is conjoined with that of her cousin. And there are damsels in Poisson for our lord the Sultan. The king, here his ministers answer in the cried. When the like of me asketh a girl in marriage of the like of thee, he conferreth an honor, and thou rejectest me putteth me off with cold excuses. Now, by the life of my head, I will marry her to the meanest of my men, in spite of the nose thee. There was in the palace a horse God, with a bunch to his breast and a hunch to his back. When the sultan sent her in, he married her to the daughter of the wazir, love for the earth, and then ordered a pious marriage procession for him. And then go into his broad spare night. I have now just learned hither from Cairo, where I left the hunchback door of the Haman Bath amidst the source of white slaves who were waving light of flambeau about him. For the minister's daughter, she sitteth among the nurses in Taiwan, weeping and wailing, for they have forbidden her father to come in. Never have I seen my sister watch. 
And Shahrazad perceived the dawn of day and ceased saying her permitted say when it was the twenty-second night. It hath reached me, O auspicious king, that when the jinni narrated to the jinniya how the king had caused the wedding contract to be drawn up between the hunchbacked groom and the lovely young lady who was heartbroken for sorrow, and how she was the fairest of created things and even more beautiful than this youth, the jinniya cried at him. The Ifrit gave her the lie again, adding, By Allah, oh my sister, the dancer I speak of is fair in this, yet none but he deserved her, for they resemble each other, brother and sister, brother's cousins. And well, oh, how she's wasted upon the Oh, my let us get up and listen to the carry of that we will compare with the damsel of whom thou speakest, and so determine the weather of the grave is there. To hear is to obey. Thou speakest to the point, nor is there a right to reckon in this and I, and I myself will carry it. So he raised him from the ground and flew with him like a bird soaring high in the upper air, the Afrita keeping close by his side at equal speed, till he alighted with him at the city of Cairo and set him down on a stone bench and woke him. He roused himself and finding he was no longer at his father's tomb in Basra city, he looked right and left and saw that he was in a strange place and he would have cried out, but the Afrit gave him a cuff which persuaded him to keep silent. Then he brought him a rich raiment and clothed him therein and, giving him a lighted flambeau, said, Know that I brought you, meaning to give you a return for the love of Allah. So take this torch, and mingle with people at the Haman door, and walk with them without stopping, till thou reach the house of the wedding festival. Then go boldly forward, and enter the great saloon, and fear not. Take thy stand in the right hand of the hunchback bride. And as often as any of the nurses is tired of the sweet girls come up to thee, put thy hand into thy pocket, which thou wilt find filled with the door. Take it out and throw it to them and spare not. For as often as thou thrust his fingers, thou shalt find full of gold. Give him thy chest by hands full, and fear nothing, for such a trust upon me. When Badr al-Din Hassan heard these words from the Ifrit, he said to himself, Would heaven I knew what all this means, and what is the cause of such kindness? However, he mingled with the people and, lighting his flambeau, moved on with the bridal processions till he came to the bath where he found the hunchback already on horseback. Then he pushed his way in among the crowd, a veritable beauty of a man in the finest apparel, wearing tarbush and turban and a long-sleeved robe purfled with gold. And, as often the singing woman stopped for the people to give them largess, he thrust his hand into his pocket and, finding it full of gold, took out a handful and threw it on the tambourine till he had filled it with gold pieces for the music girls and their tire woman. 
These singers were amazed by his bounty, and the people marveled at his beauty and loveliness and the splendor of his dress. He ceased not to do this till he reached the mansion of the wazir, who was his uncle, where the chamberlains drove back the people and forbid them to go forward, but the singing girl's entire woman said, By Allah, we will not ever unless this young man enter with us. For he has given us length of life with his largesse, and we will not display the bride unless he be present. Therewith they carried him into the bridal hall and made him sit down, defying the evil glances of the hunched-backed bridegroom. The wives of the emirs and wazirs and chamberlains and courtiers all stood in double line, each holding a massy serge ready-lighted. All wore thin face veils, and the two rows right and left extended from the bride's throne and to the head of the hall adjoining the chambers when she was to come forth. When the lady saw Badr al-Din Hassan and noted his beauty and loveliness and his face that shone like the new moon, their hearts inclined to him, and the singing girl said to all that were present, So be not cherry to do him womanly service, and comply with all he says, no matter what he asks. So all the women crowded around Hassan with their torches and gazed upon his loveliness and envied him for his beauty. And one and all would gladly have lain on his bosom for an hour, or rather a year. Their hearts were so troubled that they let fall their veils from before their faces and said, and they called down curses on the crooked groom and on him who was the cause of this marriage to the girl beauty. And as often as they blessed Badr al-Din his son, they damned the hunchback, saying, Verily this youth and none else deserves our bride. I'll well away for such a lovely one with this hideous cosmo. Allah's curse light on his head, and now the sultan who commanded the marriage. Then the singing girls beat their tabrays and lulilod with joy, announcing the appearance of the bride. The wazir's daughter came in, surrounded by her fair woman, who had made her goodly to look upon. For they had perfumed her and incensed her and adorned her hair, and they had robed her in raiment and ornaments befitting the mighty Khosrow's kings. The most notable part of her dress was a lustro worn over other garments. It was diapered in red gold with figures of wild beasts and birds whose eyes and beaks were of gems and claws of red rubies and green barrels. And her neck was graced with a necklace of Yamani work worth thousands of gold pieces whose bells were great on jewels of sorts, the like of which was never owned by Kaisar or by Tobaki. And the bride was as the full moon when at the fullest of fourteenth nights, and as she paced into the hall she was like one of the horrors of heaven. Praise be to him who created her in such splendor of beauty. The ladies encompassed her as the white contains the black of the eye. They, clustering like stars while she shone amongst them like the moon when it eats up the clouds. Now, Badr al-Din Hassan of Basra was sitting in full gaze of the folk when the bride came forward with her graceful swaying and swimming gait, and her hunchbacked groom stood up to meet and receive her. She, however, turned away from the white and walked forward till she stood before her cousin Hassan, the son of her uncle, whereat the people laughed. But when the wedding girl saw her cross attracted towards Badr al-Din Hassan, they made a mighty clamor, and the singing women shouted their loudest. Whereupon he put his hand into his pocket and, pulling out a handful of gold, cast it into the tambourines, and the girls rejoiced and said, Go be with us, this night, without At 
Disney smiled and the folk came around him, flambeau in hand like the eyeball round the pupil, while the gobbled bridegroom was left sitting alone much like a tailless baboon. For every time they lighted a candle for him, it went out willy-nilly, so he was left in darkness and silence and looking at naught but himself. When Badr al-Din Hassan saw the bridegroom sitting lonesome in the dark, and all the wedding guests in their flambeau and wax candles crowding around himself, he was bewildered and marveled much. But when he looked at his cousin, the daughter of his uncle, he rejoiced and felt an inward delight. He longed to greet her and gazed intently on her face which was radiant with light and brilliancy. Then the tiger took her from veil and displayed her in the first bridal dress which was of scarlet satin, and Hassan had a view of her which dazzled his sight and pleased his wits. As she moved to and fro, swaying with such graceful gait, and she turned the heads of all of the guests, women as well as men, for she was even as saith the surpassing poet. A sun on earth, in the meal of sun she shone, clad in her philosophy of her lips honeydew she gave me three, and with her rosy cheeks quenched fire she fell. Then they changed that dress that displayed her in a robe of azure, and she reappeared like the full moon that rises over the horizon, with her coal black hair and cheeks delicately fair, and teeth shone with sweet smile, and breasts firm rising and frowning sides with the softest and waist of the roundest. And in this second suit she was as a certain master that I can see saith of the like of her. She came up covered in an azure vest, open Then they changed that suit for another and, veiling her face in the luxuriance of her hair, so dark, so long that the darkness in her outside the darkest nights, and she shone through all the hearts with the magical shaft of her eye base. They displayed her in the third dress, and she was a saint of her the same. Raining her cheeks with her the morning she comes, and I her mischiefs with the cloud compared, saying, Thou villest morning tonight. Ah, no, quoth she, I shroud full moon with darkling air. Then they displayed her in the fourth bridal dress, and she came forward, shining like the rising sun, and swaying to and fro with lovesome grace, and supplies like a gazelle fawn. And she clave all hearts with the arrows of her eyelashes, even as saith one who described a charmer like her. The sun of beauty, she to sight appears, and lovely coy she mocks all loveliness. And when she frosts her favor and her smile, a morn the sun of day in clouds must dress. Then she came forth in the fifth dress, fairy light of loveliness like a wand of waving willow or the gazelle of the thirsty wold. Those locks which stung like scorpions along her cheeks were bent, and her neck was bowed in blandishment, and her hips quivered as she went, as saith one of the poets describing her in verse. She comes like fullest moon on a happy night, paper of waist, with shape of magic might. She hath an eye whose glances quell mankind, and ruby on her cheeks reflects his light, and veils her hips the blackness of her hair. Beware of curls that bite with viper bite. Her sides are silken soft, the while the heart, near rock behind that surface lurks from sight. From the fringed curtains of her eyes she shoots, shafts which at father's range are mark alight. When round her neck or waist I throw my arms, her breasts will pin me with their heart and Ah, oh, how her beauty all excites, 
Then they adorned her with a sixth toilet, a dress which was green, and now she shammed her slender straightness the nut brown spear. Her radiant face dimmed the brightest beams of the full moon, and she outdid the bending branches in gentle movement and flexible grace. Her loveliness exalted the beauties of Earth's four quarters, and she broke men's hearts by the significance of her semblance, for she was even as saith one of the poets in these lines. A damsel t'was the tyrant's art had decked with snares and slight, and robed in rays as though the sun from her had borrowed light. She came before us, wondrous clad, she lifted her dreams, as veiled by a fleeky screen pomegranate hides from sight. And when he said, How callest thou the manner of thy dress? She answered us in pleasant way, with double meaning dice. We call this garment grave core, and rightly is it hiding. For many a heart with this we broke, and conquered many a sprite. Then they displayed her in the seventh dress, colored between the flower and saffron, even as one of the poets says, In vest of saffron, pale and sapphire red, must she came to cry. Rise, cried her youth. Go forth and show thyself. Sit, said her hips. We cannot bear the brunt. And when I craved about her beauty, said, Do, do, and said her pretty shame. Thus they displayed the bride in all of her seven toilets before Hassan al-Basri, wholly neglecting the gobble who sat moping alone. And when she opened her eyes, she said, Oh, Allah, make this man my good man and deliver me from the evil of this hunchbacked groom. As soon as they had made an end of this part of the ceremony, they dismissed the wedding guests who went forth, women, children, and all, and none remained save Hassan and the hunchback. Whilst the tire women led the bride into an inner room to change her garb and gear and get her ready for the bridegroom. Thereupon, Quasimodo came up to Barar Adin Hassan and said, Oh, my lord. Thou hast cheered us this night with thy good company and overwhelmed us with thy kindness and courtesy. But now why not get thee up and go? Bismillah, he answered. In Allah's name, so be it. And rising, he went forth by the door where the Afrit met him and said, Stay While Hassan was still talking with the Ifrit, behold, the groom fared forth from the hall and entered the closet of ease and sat down on the stool. Hardly had he done this when the Ifrit came out of the tank wherein the water was, in semblance of a mouse, and squeaked out. Quoth the hunchback, What ails thee? And the mouse grew and grew till it became a coal-black cat and caterwauled. Then it grew still more and more till it became a dog and barked out. When the bridegroom saw this, he was frightened and exclaimed, Out with thee, O unlucky one! But the dog grew and swelled till it became an ass called the braid and snorted in his face. 
Whereupon the hunchback quaked and cried, Come to my aid, O people of the house! But behold, the ass cult grew and became as big as a buffalo and walled away before him and spake in the voice of the sons of Adam, saying, Hearing this, the groom was seized with a colic and sat down on the jakes of his clothes with teeth chattering and knocking together. Quoth the Ifrit, But as he was silent, the Ifrit continued, By Allah, replied the Gobble, O king of the buffaloes, this is no fault of mine, for they forced me to wed her. And verily I wot not that she had a lover among the buffaloes. But now I repent, first before Allah, and then before thee. Said the Ifrit to him, I swear to thee, it is not fair forth from this place, for thou wilt be before sunrise. I assure thee, I will be When the sun rises, when thy wings never long turn to task. So saying, the Ifrit took the Gobo bridegroom and set him head downwards and feet upwards in the slit of the privy, and said to him, Thus far concerning the hunchback, but as regards Badr al-Din Hassan of Basara, he left the gobo and the afrit jangling and wrangling, and, going into the house, sat him down in the very middle of the alcove. And behold, in came the bride, attended by an old woman who stood by the door, and said, O oh, father of uprightness, arise and take what God giveth thee. Then the old woman went away, and the bride, Sital Husn, or the lady of the beautiful Chet, entered the inner part of the alcove, broken-hearted, and saying in herself, by Allah, I will never yield my person to him. No, not even were he to take my life. But as she came to the further end, she saw Badr al-Din Hassan, and she said, Dearling, art thou still sitting here? By Allah, I was wishing that thou wert my bridegroom, or at least that thou and the hunchbacked horse-groom were partners in me. He replied, O oh, beautiful lady, how should the say have access to thee? And how should he share in thee with me? Quoth she, Who is my husband, thou or he? Sit all Hassan, rejoining Hassan. We have not done this for mere fun, but only as a device to ward off the evil eye from thee. For when the tire women and singers and wedding guests saw thy beauty being displayed to me, they feared fascination, and they father hired the horse groom for ten dinars and a porringer of meat to take the evil eye off us. And now he hath received his hire and gone his gate. When the Lady of Beauty heard these words, she smiled and rejoiced and laughed a pleasant laugh. Then she whispered him, By the Lord, thou hast quenched a fire which tortured me, and now by Allah, O oh my little dark-haired darling, take me to thee and press me to thy bosom. Then she began singing, By Allah set thy foot upon my soul, since long, long years for this alone I long. And whisper tale of loving ear of me To me tis sweeter than the sweetest song No other news 
love on my heart shall lie So do it often dear and do it long Then she stripped off her outer gear and she threw open her camis from the neck downward and showed her parts genital and all the rondure of her hips. When Badir al-Din saw the glorious sight, his desires were roused, and he arose and doffed her clothes, and wrapping up his bag trousers, the purse of gold which he had taken from the Jew and which contained ten thousand dinars, he laid it under the edge of the bedding. Then he took off his turban and set it upon the settel atop the other clothes, remaining in his skull cap and fine shirt of blue silk laced with gold, whereupon the Lady of Beauty drew him to her and he did likewise. Then he took her to his embrace and set her legs round his waist and point-blanked that cannon, placed it where it battered down the bulwark of the maiden's head and layeth it waist. And he found her apparel unpierced and unthridden, and a filly by all men save himself unridden. And he abated her virginity and had joyance of her youth and his virility. And presently he withdrew the sword from sheath and then returned to the frayerate earth. And when the battle and the siege had finished, some fifteen assaults he had furnished, and she conceived by him that very night. Then he laid his hand under her head, and she did of the same, and they embraced and fell asleep in each other's arms, as a certain poet said of such lovers in these couplets. Visit thy lover's sperm within the told, no envious churl so smile on love and soul, merciful Allah made no fairer sight, then coupled lover single couch doth hold, breast pressing breast, and robed enjoys their own, with pillowed forearms cast in finest mold. And when heart speaks to heart with tongue of love, folk who would part them hammer still ice cold. If a fair friend thou find who claims to thee, live for that friend, that friend in heart and fold. O ye who blame for love his lover kind, say, can he minister to disease the mind? This much concerning Badr al-Din Hassan and Sit al-Husn, his cousin. But as regards the Ifrit, as soon as he saw the twain asleep, he said to the Ifritah, Rise, smooth the young youth. Let us carry back to this place, ere dawn take us, for the day is near time. Thereupon she came forward and, getting under him as he lay asleep, took him up clad only in his fine blue shirt, leaving the rest of his garments, and ceased not flying, and the Ifrit vying with her in flight, till the dawn advised them that it had come upon them midway, and the Musin began his call from the minaret. Then Allah suffered his angelic host to shoot down the Ifrit with the shooting star. So he was consumed, but the Ifritah escaped and she descended with Badr al-Din Hassan to the place the Ifrit was burnt and did not carry him back to Basra, fearing lest he come to harm. Now, by the order of him who predestineth all things, they alighted at Damascus of Syria, and the Ifritah set down her burden at one of the city gates and flew away. Arabian Nights audio drama from Sir Richard Burton's timeless classic, Arabian Nights Entertainment, The Tale of Nur al-Din and His Son, features Dustin Dar, Jafar, Marguerite, Sharzad, Zaid Patterson, Shams al-Din, Patrick Seymour, Nur al-Din, Kamran Nikar, Lord Sultan and Sultan, Sean Chippewa, Jewish Merchant, Warren Blackie, Hassan, Karen Heyman, Sitting al-Hassoon, Lee Turner, Retainer, Kai Skratzi, Servant and Townsperson, John Longshaw, Ifrit, Stephanie Longshaw, Ifrita, Poet, Chris Thurman, Hunchback, 
Faisal Yakub, Old Wazir and Muazin, Gwendolyn Jensen Woodard, Old Woman, Tire Woman, Cassandra Vladislava. Sound effects from freesound.org. Music, classical Arabic arrangements by Neil Moha, Xera, and Toam from freesound.org. Ambient selections by Black Seas of Infinity. Opening and ending credits theme, Inner End, Steve Irwin. And Arabian Adventures by Music Bakery. Licensed by audiosparks.com. Desert Gems Audio. Mixed and produced by Eslong Shah. Copyright 2013. All rights reserved.